I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight every good path. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In this broadcast, we shall be moving on to the third of the baptisms as mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2, the A part where it talks about the doctrine of baptisms as in plural. We've thus far seen the first, which is a baptism into the body. We've seen the second also, which is baptism with the Holy Spirit. And now we move to the third, which is baptism of fire. But before we get into that, let's do a brief and quick review of our discussion in our last broadcast, where we looked at how to receive Holy Spirit baptism. We noted that there is no specific methodology for receiving baptism. That is, there's no way you can tell when or how or where. It can happen anyhow, it can happen anywhere, it can happen anytime. For example, we saw that whilst Peter was still preaching in Cornelius' home, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So it can happen whilst a teaching is going on or whilst a sermon is being preached. It can happen at water baptism. It can happen even at salvation, as it was in the case in Cornelius' home. They received the Holy Spirit baptism at the same time as their salvation. And the Holy Spirit can come upon you when a minister of the gospel lays hands upon you. So basically, be ready at any time, because it can happen any time. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, suddenly they heard a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind coming into the place. And the next thing, they found themselves baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when it happens, it will happen suddenly. So be ready at all times. Be desirous to serve God because this gift of the Holy Spirit comes upon us so that we are able to serve God. As long as people are desirous of serving God and not just wanting to sit down in the pews, the Holy Spirit will come. And then we said also that you must be born again and you must be sanctified and being sanctified. We also mentioned that it is always a good thing to have a knowledge of the evidence of the Holy Spirit baptism so that when it happens, you will know it has happened. You will not be searching for whether it has happened or not. And some of the indicators we mentioned were boldness, witnessing the manifestation of spiritual gifts, and particularly tongues. That led us to discussing tongues. And we noted that Holy Spirit baptism is not all about tongues. And tongues is not just an evidence of Holy Spirit baptism. We said that tongues are also a spiritual gift as given by the Holy Spirit. Then we said that tongues are prayer language because it's the means by which we communicate with God particularly when we're talking of the tongues of angels. We mentioned that there are two types of tongues, the tongues of angels and the tongues of men. The tongues of men are the languages of men spoken anywhere in the world, but which the person who is speaking that language has never learned, is unknown to the person, he just doesn't know anything about it. And then we talked of the tongues of angels. With tongues of angels, basically you are communicating with God. Tongues are also useful for self-edification. When you're trying to build yourself up spiritually, you pray in the spirit on your own and the person is beefed up. When tongues are combined with interpretation of tongues, it becomes prophecy and it becomes a blessing to others. But without interpretation, tongues is a blessing only to the person who is speaking with tongues. And then we said that when it is the tongues of men which the person is speaking, which he doesn't understand, it is a sign to an unbeliever who is present, who obviously would know what is being said, that God is actually saying something to him, so he will come to a place of repentance, he will be convicted of his sinfulness. And then we said that where you have tongues spoken and there's interpretation of tongues, the listeners must of necessity discern whether it is from God or not. You are expected to judge what is being interpreted. 
whether it is of God or not. We concluded by noting that if your speaking in tongues does not translate into blessing others out of love for God, it is unprofitable. So the essence of speaking with tongues as a part of Holy Spirit baptism is you are being a blessing to other people. So let's move on to what we want to discuss today, which is baptism of fire or baptism in fire or baptism with fire. Any of the three prepositions would go with what we want to discuss or put differently, baptism of, with, or in suffering. This baptism may not feature in the theology of many Christians. Yet, it is scripturally one of the baptisms that a Christian undergoes. Let me read Luke chapter 3, 16 and 17. This is John the Baptist speaking. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The parallel scripture is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, which you can read on your own. Based on the verses of scripture that we've read, there are different understanding or schools of thought concerning what we've said in relation to baptism. Some people say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire are one and the same. Why do they say that? They point to what happened in Acts of the Apostles chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, how there were cloven tongues of fire upon the heads of the disciples to signify that this is the baptism of Holy Spirit with fire. So they combined the two. In fact, some modern translations excised and fire because they believe that it's one and the same. Now, there's another school of thought that believe that the baptism they are speaking about here is a future baptism because of the terminology, but the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire, which is usually associated with hell. And so what they are saying, in essence, that John the Baptist was speaking of a baptism that would take place afterwards with fire. And that baptism with fire is speaking about the burning of the unbeliever in fire. This argument is shaky because baptism is never used in conjunction with unbelievers. It is only used where believers in Christ are concerned. Then there are those who believe that it is a figure of the working of the Holy Spirit in the inner being of the believer, purging and purifying the believer. This postulation seems close to what baptism or fire would portend, but it is not really what it is. So what does scripture say about baptism of fire? A closer look at scripture makes a distinction between Holy Spirit baptism and baptism with fire or baptism in fire or baptism with fire. So let's dive into one or two verses of scripture and see what the Bible tells us about this particular thing. In Mark chapter 10, reading from verse 37 to 39, it happened that the two brothers, James and John, had come to seek a request of the Lord and they wanted that they would sit next to him when his kingdom is set up. Maybe they thought it was an earthly kingdom, or even though they may have thought it to be a heavenly kingdom, they just wanted one person to sit on one side and the other to sit on the other. And the Lord Jesus Christ gave them a response. So let's read it from verse 37. They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? 
and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now the Lord was here speaking of a baptism that he is baptized with. Not that he will be baptized with, but that he is already baptized with. We could look at that expression as a present continuous tense. That is a baptism that is ongoing and will not terminate until its purpose is accomplished. We shall see that as we look at another verse of scripture. He also makes it clear that them and we all will be baptized with that same baptism. And he is not speaking about Holy Spirit baptism here. Because when we look at the way he couches it, he talks of a cup that he is going to drink. And when we look at the reference of that cup that is going to drink in John chapter 18, verse 11, where he uses that expression again. This was when Peter attacked one of those who came to arrest him in Gethsemane. He said, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? There he's speaking of what is generally referred to as his passion or his suffering and death. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 and 42, when the Lord was praying in Gethsemane, verse 39 says, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. We find a reference to the issue of his suffering and death in relation to this discussion of a baptism that is to be baptized with. The Lord referred to his suffering here at the hands of the Sanhedrin and of the Romans in reference to this particular place. But the truth of the matter is that the Lord Jesus Christ had gone through this baptism all his earthly life. We only see what happened towards the end of his life and try to say that that is the baptism he's referring to here. But he's referring to a baptism that is an ongoing baptism that culminated and terminated at his death. For example, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 to the end, when his conception took place, there was already a problem from the beginning of his conception. Joseph, his surrogate father, was already contemplating Packing his mother aside until the Holy Spirit intervened. In Luke chapter 2 verse 7, when he was born, the Bible tells us that there was no room in the inn. He was born in a manger, in a lonely place. He began to experience hardship, as it were, from the womb to the time he was brought forth into the world. And then in Matthew chapter 2, if you read from verse 1 to 18, it describes how the Magi had come from the far east to Jerusalem and said they had seen a star. They had come to worship a king that has been born. And so they went to the palace. When they went to the palace and Herod knew that he didn't have a new child born there, he was worried and was concerned and said, what was going on? He called for the Jewish scholars. And it was there that they told them, oh, it is documented that it is in Bethlehem of Judea that such a thing would take place. And so he told the Magi that when they had gone and they had confirmed where the child was, they should return to him and let him know. The Magi went, they saw the Lord, I think it must have been around two years old by this time, when they saw him and they worshipped him and brought some gifts to him. That night, the angel of the Lord warned the Megai not to go back through Jerusalem, but they should go back on another route and go their way. And also warned Joseph to take the child and flee to Egypt with the child. When Herod saw that he had been dished, as it were, by the Megai, he summoned troops and they went into Bethlehem of Judea and began to slaughter children, any child from two years and below. They slaughtered all such children. 
what a baptism, what a place to be born into. And then in Luke chapter 2, from verse 41 to 51, we know that story very well. How the Lord had gone with his surrogate parents to Jerusalem for the feast. And uh, after the feast, they were returning and they forgot him there. And then when they went back, they saw him questioning and discussing with the doctors of letters in the temple. So they came and said, why do you do this? And he said to them, do you not know that I should be about my father's business? Then they told him, let's go home. And the Bible records that he went with them and was subject to them. So he had gone through certain things that would seem to be limiting him. Those experiences, even though they seem to be insignificant, were part of his suffering. Finally, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 13, this was after he had been baptized in water by John. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What has happened here? The Lord Jesus has just been baptized with the Holy Spirit. After his baptism, he was immediately led by the same Spirit of God, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This temptation was a baptism of fire. Now, let me try and explain this as best as the Holy Spirit gave me an understanding of it. When you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you have been empowered to serve. In that service, it also means you can cast out demons. It means you can stop Satan from doing what he wants to do in the lives of people. Now, in this particular case, Satan now says, you are giving this fellow such an enormous power over me. Should I not put him to the test before we can even say that he can control me? And so he brought his temptation. This is what happens. When God is giving you enormous power like that, you are going to be tested or put differently, you are going to be tempted. God has his test and Satan comes in form of temptation. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you see testing and you see temptation. Temptation is always by Satan. Testing is always by God. Any which one, God wants you to succeed. Satan wants you to fail. If God is testing you, God wants you to pass his test. Satan wants you to fail that test. If it is Satan that is tempting you, God wants you to overcome the temptation. Satan wants you to fall. If you fall, then he has the right to stop you or to tell God, you can't give this fellow that kind of power because he has failed. So we see this happening here. And every time he came and tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ overcame. So Satan failed. But you would have thought that Following this, that the Lord had succeeded and defeated him on all counts, you would be able to say, now the Lord has arrived. But the Bible records in verse 13, a very salient note, but which is very crucial. 
He said, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So it's not as if he left. And if you read the scriptures, you find times where you see the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees tempting him. The Bible says they asked the question, they did this tempting him. That was Satan always coming to tempt him. So when we look at the baptism of fire or the baptism with fire, it is not a once and for all thing. It's as though you are put in that fire from the beginning. In Luke chapter 12 verse 50, the Lord speaks of it in a future tense. And one would wonder that, was he only referring to the future? Because we know that he went through this throughout his ministry. But he was speaking essentially of the ultimate of it all, which was what would happen when he hung on the tree. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 15, he says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Let me read John chapter 12 also. In John chapter 12, verse 27, the Lord said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So he was speaking of that ultimate time, that ultimate suffering that he would go through, that process. And he was saying that, should I now say that I don't want this? Say no, instead. This was the reason why I came. This was the essence of my coming. Because as a result of my dying, salvation will be released unto mankind. So what we all see is this ultimate baptism. We don't see those ones over time that happened. How he was tempted, how he had to avoid them, how they wanted to push him over a hilltop when he went to his town, how some people said that he had a demon. We don't really see those things as part of it, but it is part of the baptism trail that culminates, or in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, it culminated in his death. The Lord spoke of this baptism to Ananias when he was speaking to Ananias about Saul of Tarsus. Let's look at that in Acts chapter 9. I'm trying to build a scriptural basis for the truth about the baptism of fire or baptism with fire or baptism in fire. In Acts chapter 9 from verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. For one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So from the beginning of the ministry of Paul, the Lord had said that Paul was going to suffer many things. And we saw his sufferings. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he will just get a snippet of that which he recorded concerning himself and the things that he suffered in the ministry. From verse 23, he's speaking about people who claim to be ministers of the gospel. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That is 39 strokes. Five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, 
a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. These are the travails of Paul. And yet, he served whilst going through all of this. In fact, in chapter 12, he spoke about how, because of the enmity of the visions which God had given him and granted to him, God sent a messenger from Satan to buffet him. He said, three times I prayed, asking the Lord to remove these things. At the end of it, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. This thing is not going to leave you. I'm keeping it because I don't want you to be proud. So the baptism of fire or baptism of suffering is not a baptism that is a punishment. No, it is for our own good. Maybe in the next broadcast, we will see the usefulness of this baptism to the believer. Many people want the glory like James and John. They want to sit on one side and on the other side of the Lord. They want to sit next to Jesus. Many people desire that when they get to heaven, they will be close. They'll be walking with Jesus throughout. But they do not realize that to get there, they must pass through fire. They must pass through suffering. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16 to verse 18, Romans 8, 16 to 18, the Bible says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Look, we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. If we suffer with him, then we are joint heirs with him. If we are going to be joint heirs with him, then we will suffer with him. In verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed. So there's a glory to be revealed and there's a suffering to go through. We must go through that suffering for the glory to be revealed. We are running a kind of Christianity that is very strange to scripture. The Christianity that came from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ is a Christianity that recognized the place and the role of suffering. When James and John were asking the Lord, the Lord told them, you are going to go through this baptism, just like we all will go through the baptism. Many people are running away from this baptism. That's why there's so much noise today about persecution of Christians. Oh, they are killing Christians. Yes! But what do you want to do? You are not going to stop it. You may delay it, but you are not going to stop it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, from verse 12 to verse 19, Peter again speaks about this. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. He is speaking of that baptism. Say, so you are going to go through some challenges. Don't think that it is strange that a fiery trial, a difficulty, suffering, this is but rejoice. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. We cannot get into the glory if we are not partakers of his suffering. Every baptism that the Lord experienced, we will experience those baptisms as well. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Because you'll be glorified with him. Because you suffered with him. You were partaker of his sufferings. In verse 14 says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ... Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you should rejoice when men revile you and persecute you for righteousness' sake. He says, be glad. So did they also do to the prophets of old. In verse 15, Peter continues, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, 
or as a busybody in other people's matters. That is not persecution. That's not suffering. If you are suffering because of that, it's because it's what you did. He says, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. That is, if you suffer because of Christ, as a Christian, because of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. It is the will of God that people will suffer in accordance with his will. Baptism of fire or baptism of suffering or baptism with fire or in fire, whatever preposition you want to use, is the will of God. It's one of the baptisms for the believer. He says, if you are suffering according to the will of God, commit your souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. When you are going through that, don't jump out. Don't scream. Don't shout. Just ask the Lord to come and help you. This was how Paul, writing by the Spirit of God, put his experience. From 2 Corinthians 4, from verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. There is something that is put inside us. And God wants to show to the world that what is happening in them is of me, is not of them. So what does he do? He puts us in conditions that you would have said, but this man has the power. How come he's not doing this for himself? Remember when the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross? People kept telling him, his detractors, they said to him, you were saving people. Save yourself now. Calm down. Those taunts could have derailed him from fulfilling the will of God and from bringing salvation to man. So there's a treasure in us. And it must be shown that it's of God and not of us. So what does Paul say? He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. So we face life challenges, but God is there to ameliorate it, to uphold us, to keep us, to protect us. Yet he does not stop those things from happening to us. But like he said to Paul, when Paul prayed, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. In verse 9, it says, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. If you are a Christian, you will experience these things. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. We are dying. We are being crucified for the sake of Christ. We are being persecuted. We are being destroyed for the sake of Christ. He says, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. People want to kill us. We are marked men. So we enter into Christianity as marked men. We must understand that this baptism, from the day you are born again, you have entered into it. You can't avoid it unless you are not a child of God. Unless you say you want to jump out, you don't want to be a Christian again. In verse 12 it says, so then death is working in us. But life in you, because what it says is that through our dying, the life of God is released unto those who are looking at us. And as they also mature, they too will get into the place of death and life of God is released unto other people. In verse 13, it says, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. And will present us with him. For all things are for your sakes. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Even though outwardly we are being attacked, but on the inside, we are being strengthened in the inner man. 
for our light affliction. That is how he describes the baptism of fire. This baptism of suffering that many people are afraid of. He calls it a light affliction. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, the duration of this light affliction is considered a moment, even though it might be a lifetime. It might be for us. Let's say you were born again at the age of, say, 20. Let's just say 20 for the sake of argument. And you leave this world at the age of 70. And from the day you got born again, you entered into this baptism. That 50 years span is a moment when you compare it to eternity because eternity has no time frame. It's but a moment. He it says, it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the baptism of suffering is a part of the life of the believer. Now, as I close, I'm going to use some illustrations. Let's picture the person who wants to eat roasted chicken. After killing the chicken, he opens it up and puts it through the tongue and in a grill and begins to roll it and roll it and roll it. If that chicken could speak as the heat is going in and it is getting brown and it's being cooked with oil and other things, the chicken would tell you that, man, can we not just seize this thing? But the fellow who wants to eat it cannot eat it raw. To eat the chicken that way would be dangerous to his health. He needs to make sure that the chicken is well done, properly grilled. So the grilling process of that chicken could be equated to a baptism of fire. But it brings pleasure to the one who is going to be a partaker of the chicken. God is not a sadist. If we are going to bring pleasure to the Lord, we will go through that process that grilling process, well done, so that nothing will move us. The essence of all of this suffering is so that we get built up within us. We have an endurance, as it were, a perseverance about suffering, about challenges of life, that when they do come, we are unfazed, and it brings pleasure to God, because God can say to Satan, do you see that they are not moved by these things? You will recall, that in Job chapter 1, Satan had gone to God concerning what he was doing. And then in the course of discussion, God pointed out to Job, do you see Job, my servant? That is an astute man. He's perfect in everything. Because I'm sure Satan must have tried him and he didn't work out. So Satan says to God, does Job fear you for nothing? Is it not because you have protected him? You've built a hedge around him. That's why he fears you. God said, okay, I know Job doesn't fear me because of that. Job fears me because of who I am, not because of the things that he has. So Satan says to God, okay, why don't we give it a shot? Remove everything that he has and you will see that he will curse you. And God said, okay, I give you. Go ahead and do that. And Satan goes and wipes out everything that was Job's. All his children, all his businesses, everything that he owned. In one day, everything was destroyed. The only people who were left alive were people who would go and give Job the bad news. At the end of the day, Job said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Glory be to God. Bible says he maintains integrity and did not curse God. Then Satan goes to back to God. God said, you see what you've made me to do? Maybe to give you permission to do all those things to Job and yet see what Job has done. He has not cursed. And Satan says to God, it's because everything he has done is outside of his body. Touch his body. You will see what he will do. God said, okay, you can touch his body, but you cannot kill him. And so he went ahead and inflicted Job with a horrible disease that Job was scratching and there was no abatement to the point that his wife, who was not killed by Satan, told Job, curse God and die. And you wonder, where did she get it in her head that she needed to curse God? Because Satan was speaking through her that if you want to save your husband's life, Tell him to curse God, he will die and that will be the end. But Job said to his wife, you are behaving like one of those foolish heathen women. If we have received good from God, shall we not receive evil from him? What a man. God looked at him and said, wow. And he maintained his integrity. This baptism comes to prove us that we are indeed of God. To prove the character 
the kind of people were in those days when they want to get wine from wine grapes, they put them in a vat and men begin to press with their feet. They press the grapes in the wine press until the juice flows out. The juice brings delight to those who drink it. But the grapes had to go through a crushing. They had to go through a pressing. They had to go through a process that brought that pleasure to the one drinking it. If you had asked the grapes at that point in time, they would say, no, 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 we don't want to be crushed. We don't want to be crushed. You can just eat it if you want to eat like that. But they say, no, we want to drink it. And they went through the crushing. In the same way, the believer brings the light to God. When those things happen, and he's able to stand firm and insist that Jesus Christ is Lord. This was what happened in the early church. When they told them to deny Christ, and they refused to deny Christ. The Romans killed them. They did everything. They refused to deny Jesus Christ. A slaughter that spanned approximately 300 years. Instead, people were still being baptized into Christianity. And you wonder, what was the allure? What was it that was attracting them? There was something about the Lord Jesus Christ in their conviction that made them say, no matter what, I will remain with Christ. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, the Lord speaking through Malachi to Israel's service. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For it's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Without this purging, they couldn't do that. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. These things come to purge us, to remove the impurity. The Lord says that he will come as a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire is the fire in which they put silver. When silver ingot is gotten from the earth, after you washed it, it is still not sterling, it's not shining. So you have to put it in the fiery furnace, in a crucible, and allow it to begin to burn, to liquefy. And the refiner sits and watches as impurities are removed until when he looks into the silver, he sees his image. He knows that now he has sterling. Such silver can never be destroyed. Such silver is what they use to make silver coins, commission coins, and so on and so forth. But first, the impurity, or what is called the dross of silver, must be removed. That is what the baptism of fire is like. It is to produce the purest of silver or gold amongst the believers. To produce the believer that will stand the test of time. The genius of his faith stands firm. When I was growing up, there was a particular soap that they used to sell in Lagos in those days. It was called Oshio Koto. It was basically caustic soda. You never use that soap on light clothing. It would tear it. You use it on jeans or khaki clothing. It had a way of washing clean. But the hands of the person who is washing becomes hardened because of the composition of that soap. A launderer's soap is like that. What the old King James calls the fuller soap. It can wash anything clean. So what he's saying here is that the baptism of suffering is actually a baptism of the process of perfecting the believer. It's a process. I call it the baptism of perfection. It's a baptism of the process of perfecting the believer in practical terms. 
For example, you have a spouse who is recalcitrant and the Bible says that you cannot divorce. God now expects you to live the word of God. Remember how the Lord Jesus Christ overcame temptation. He kept saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. So when we face life challenges, the question you should be asking is, what is written? We live by what is written. The baptism of fire brings us to the place where regardless of what is happening, we are living strictly by the word of God. No more, no less. We're not living by the way A or B or C is conducting themselves. No, we are living as what has been written in the Bible. We're not going to say, but this pastor does it this way. No, what does the word of God say to you? God is bringing us to the place through this baptism where we become a delight to him. Unless we are a delight to him, our giftings, our gifts, our offerings don't mean anything to him. He said in Malachi chapter 3, after the sons of Levi have been purged, he talks about purging them as gold and silver in verse 3, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Without that purging, whatever they are offering, their service, not just the money they bring, but their service to God will not be considered a righteous service. In verse 4, then says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. If you're a Christian in the real sense of the word, you are a marked man. There's a big target sign on your chest saying, kill me. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 14, 25 to 33, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your children, your wife, yes, even your own life, you cannot be his disciple. He said, and unless you carry your cross and you follow him, you cannot be his disciple. Speaking about your willingness to die for the sake of the gospel. Many people are coming into the gospel today because they want to enjoy life. The gospel is not about enjoyment. The gospel is about what God desires of us. And it's not going to be easy. I think it's in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 and 14 where it says, Enter by the narrow gate. He said that narrow gate is straight. It's constricted. Very few people find it. But he said, the way that leads to destruction, that is to hell, is wide and broad. And there are many people on it. The many people on that road are not just people who are not born again. There are people who are born again, but they have chosen the white road. The white road is a road that permits anything. It's an anything goes road. It allows you to divorce your wife and remarry. It allows you to leave your husband and go after your own views. Such a thing allows you to dress as you like. It is a permissive lifestyle. All the people on that road live a permissive lifestyle. But the narrow gate by which you use in getting to eternity is so narrow, so straight, that you cannot do things the way you want to do it and get in there. You cannot. You will have to drop it off. So the baptism of suffering or the baptism of fire comes to prune, to cut off all those things that we thought were allowed. And as you go through that process of perfecting, you encounter perseverance, endurance, patience, the ability to go through pressure and stand under pressure. I want us to appreciate the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ went through this baptism as an example to show us that we must of necessity go through it. For now, I want to encourage you to start talking to God about the challenges that you are facing in life. It is not that God is unaware of the challenges that you are facing. The truth of the matter is that all of those things are there to build you up. They are your spiritual muscle builder. Have you noticed that the ones you try to quickly look for shortcuts to avoid, when you get to a place, they come back. Why? Because you are a chosen vessel unto the Lord. You must needs go through a lot of things. You will suffer so many things for the sake of the gospel. And the Lord wants to prepare you for those times. This baptism is a baptism of process, a baptism of preparation, preparing you for perfection, preparing you to serve God as you ought to serve Him. My prayer is that the Almighty God will help you to get to the place where no matter what happens, 
you will not be faced. Even at the point of death, you will confess Christ. And until we meet again, God bless you and goodbye.